0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Honored to be with you tonight. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen. And we cover the stories that the mainstream media too often ignore. One of those stories has been the historic steps taken by the Trump administration in support of Israel. In the face of widespread opposition from the foreign policy establishment, President Trump moved the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. That was a promise that had been made by many administrations in the past and was finally fulfilled by President Trump. President Trump also recently secured historic deals with Bahrain, with Qatar, and Sudan. He has increased pressure on Iran. And now, the Washington Free Beacon is reporting that anti-Israel groups are mobilizing to install allies in a potential Biden administration. Here to break down Republican support for Israel, The current state of U.S.-Israel relations, and to give some insight into the future, is Matt Brooks, Executive Director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Matt, great to have you on the show. Appreciate you joining us.
2: Oh, Eric, it is is—it is such an honor to be with you, and uh, you're a, a great friend, and uh, I really look forward to, to breaking down and talking about these important issues for your viewers.
1: Absolutely. Well, first, before we dive into the issues, Matt, you know, for our viewers who don't know a lot about the Republican Jewish Coalition, please tell them a little bit about your mission.
2: So we have a twofold mission. On one hand, we work within the Republican Party establishment uh, at the highest levels from the president and vice president uh, through the cabinet into uh, the House and the Senate with governors and uh, other uh, Republican GOP opinion leaders to try and build Uh, a very strong pro-Israel agenda and to be a voice for issues of concern to the Jewish community, not just in foreign policy, but domestic issues as well, rising anti-Semitism. We've been working to push back on efforts by the radical left to defund the police, for instance. Mm -hmm. which. Uh, your viewers may not think is a a Jewish community issue, but with the rise in anti-Semitism around uh, the country, we are much safer with a strong and vibrant uh, law enforcement community who is supported uh, and and honored uh, as opposed to what the left wants to do, which is to denigrate them and defund them. So we have a range of issues on one hand. The other uh, parallel mission, uh, is to work within the Jewish community and try and broaden the base of support, Mm -hmm. uh, for Republicans among Jewish voters. And I am thrilled that, uh, in this last election, because of the kind of issues that we're going to be talking about, because he has been without question, the most pro-Israel president in history, uh, Donald Trump, after, um, Our efforts at spending $10 million targeting the Jewish community this year uh, got historic and record support uh, among Jewish voters. He got 30 percent of the Jewish vote nationally. Uh, And you have to go back to the 1980s to see a uh, Republican president do that well among Jewish voters. Uh, But the real interesting takeaway, Eric, is in a critical battleground state of Florida, where we invested $5 million alone, uh, he got 43 percent of the Jewish vote. 43 percent. Never happened uh, ever uh, in history before that. And uh, I think it's a reflection of what's changing in the Jewish community in terms of the frustration with the takeover of the Democratic Party by the the progressive radical left mm-hmm. uh, and the anti-Israel crowd that comes along with them. But it's also a manifestation uh, of how great this president is. And we saw it. Uh, the Jewish community really showed their appreciation for him in this election.
1: Absolutely. And I, I want to turn to those domestic issues in in, in a second. Uh, But when we think internationally, first, you know, your team has played a really strong role that many people might not recognize in advancing and shaping the Trump administration's pro-Israel policies. Uh, When you look back, what do you think are the biggest successes that you would point to in terms of President Trump advancing and strengthening U.S.-Israel relations?
2: Well, I think that there are a couple things. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned at the open, uh, the moving of the embassy to uh, to Jerusalem was. Incredibly impactful, not only because of the symbolism that goes along with it, uh, but it also sent a message to the rest of the international community that President Trump is someone who uh, stands by his commitments and stands by his pledges. He pledged in the campaign that he was going to move the embassy, as d- has done almost every other presidential candidate and president prior to him, uh, none of whom did it. President Trump did it. Um, but you know, I think one of the 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 other aspects uh, that you, that is absolutely critical is what he did on the Iran deal. And Mm -hmm. in both of these cases, uh, pulling out of the Iran deal and moving the embassy, um, it really says a lot about who President Trump is, because uh, if you can imagine, literally every single person, uh, almost every single person around the president, including his secretary of defense, his secretary Mm -hmm. of state, his director of national intelligence, his CIA director, um... You know, all of them were telling him, you know, Mr. President, you can't move the embassy, you can't end the Iran deal. Uh, there's going to be, you know, uh, blood in the streets. the The Middle East is going to erupt, and it really takes a person who is strong in his convictions. If you think about it, uh, to really overrule uh, his entire um, foreign policy advisors, you know, with the exception of Ambassador David Friedman and Jared, mm-hmm. and Nikki Haley, and and the others, but. Um, you know they were all telling him this would be an absolute catastrophic disaster. Uh, and he had the strength of his convictions to go and do it anyway, and we saw that uh, he was right and they were wrong., it actually
1: reminds you a lot of President Truman, who people sometimes forget faced tremendous opposition, including from his Secretary of State George Marshall when Truman made the bold move to come out and recognize the and recognize the State of Israel. Matt, let's let's turn turn domestically for a second. I think, Given everything that's happened over the summer, people have been focused on coronavirus, they've been focused on these defund the police movements, they saw a lot of riots, looting, arson across the country. One of the other trends that I think people haven't seen as much of and hasn't been covered in the mainstream media has been this rise in anti-Semitism around the country, especially on a lot of college campuses. Uh, Talk a little bit about what you're seeing and about what the Republican-Jewish coalition is doing to counter that across the country.
2: Well, again, this is, thank you, Eric. This is another terrific success by the president who has done more uh, to combat anti-Semitism, to speak up and actually do things of substance than any other president in history. And what was very telling, as I mentioned before, about the strength of support that the president got in the Jewish community is that it was in spite of uh, four years of this unrelenting character assassination and lies that somehow this president is soft on anti-Semitism. He coddles neo-Nazis and white nationalists, which is absolutely absurd. And I was fortunate enough to be with him at the White House when he signed uh, his executive order Uh, Giving Title VI protection to Jewish students on college campuses who face anti Semitism. And as a result of that action, he has made Jewish students safer uh, and more secure on college campuses in the face of uh, rising anti Semitism. And, you know, with the BDS movement, there's only one constituency uh, in the United States that's pushing. Uh, for uh, BDS, and that's the radical progressives on the left. And this president has been an absolute bulwark uh, in pushing back and and making sure uh, that people know that that BDS equals anti-Semitism and that he's not going to tolerate anti-Semitism. You draw that in stark contrast to what we see on the streets of our cities, which you mentioned before. Um, Look at the abject failure of leadership by Democratic mayors like Bill yeah. de Blasio in which, you know, Jews are, are beaten uh, horribly just by walking on the streets of Brooklyn. And I would say to your, your viewers, Uh, for those who, you know, because they try and blame all this on Trump, I will tell you that, uh, the people who were beating up Orthodox Jews walking, uh, on the streets of New York are not, are not white nationalists and they are not neo-Nazis. And uh, unlike, uh, Mayor de Blasio, which is, which has refused to stand up and defend the Jewish community, President Trump, uh, has acted and spoken out and, and has made the Jewish community safer
1: absolutely and matt talk a little bit about what you've seen as the trend over the course of the last couple of decades it used to be that the jewish community and israel could could count on really strong bipartisan support that you had republicans and democrats who would both stand up in support the state of Israel. We've seen though, I believe, a, a creeping in the Democratic party of not just some radical leftists, but even the welcoming and the, the embrace of, of members of the House of Representatives who will often you know, voice sentiments that sound explicitly anti-Israel. Where do you think this is coming from and where do you think it's going?
2: Well, I think it's coming clearly from the rising influence of the progressive left within the Democratic Party, and and we don't have to look too far to see uh, to see what's happening in real time. Say, for instance, in in the Georgia uh, runoff with uh, Reverend Warnock, uh, yeah. who is a friend and supporter of Reverend Jeremiah Wright, uh, who has uh, called uh, uh, Israel these birds of prey, who has likened Israel to an apartheid state. Um, you know who is, who has shown his virulent anti-Israel bona fides, uh, and he's a product of that you know that radical left, and and we see it in the defeat of uh, you know Elliot Engel, who was the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a long-standing Jewish pro-Israel member of Congress, beaten by an AOC-supported uh, progressive uh, uh, Jamal Bowman. Uh, And time and again, we're seeing the shift in the Democratic Party as the as the progressives take more and more uh, control of the party, which they are doing. We see them um, we see them moving further and further away from Israel. And I will I will tell your viewers, you know, to think about it in this context, Uh, Eric, as you know, because you've done so many of these events and dinners and speeches. Any Republican can walk into any Republican political event and say I stand with Israel and it's an automatic standing ovation. It's an automatic applause line. There is not a Democrat in America who can go to a Democrat organization today and say I stand with Israel without being booed and heckled. And, it's, and I think that's tremendous, it's absolutely-
1: tremendous marker of, of the difference. Folks, we're gonna bring Matt Brooks back onto the show to talk more about these really important issues. We appreciate you, Matt, and we'll be right back.
0: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's com slash wondery.
1: Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we're proud to bring you people with strong opinions rooted in fact, in history, and in a deep respect for the Constitution Joining us now is a friend of the program, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Many of you know him. You know his resume. You may not know that he is a veteran of the British Territorial Army and is today a strong supporter of veterans around the country. So first, Seb, toughest question for you. Army-Navy game coming up. What's what's your pick?
3: <laughs> You're really trying to get me in trouble, aren't you, yes, Governor? Yes, yes. Um... All right, let, let, let me try and uh, not insult too to many services. So uh, I love my frogs. I love my seals. I've had a long abiding relationship uh, with the Marine Corps, I, I taught at the Marine Corps University for years. Love, love my Devil Dogs, Um, and the people I have the longest relationship with, and I think this is going to answer your question, is uh, the guys at the Q Course at the uh, the Special mm-hmm. Warfare Center in School in Bragg. So I, I love, uh, I love my SF, uh, SF guys. So, but if you're wearing the cloth of the Republic. Uh, Uh, i'm on your side
1: awesome i love it i love it i said look i want to get your thoughts on this Uh, glenn greenwald uh, he's a journalist who quit his job at the intercept which is a publication that he co-founded he quit it just a few days before the election after the outlet refused to publish his work unless he removed any and all criticisms of democratic candidate joe biden Uh, he wrote that his resignation from the intercept follows the same trends of repression, censorship, and ideological homogeneity plaguing the national press generally, and that have engulfed the media outlet that he co-founded, culminating in the censorship of his own articles. Now, uh, let's, I just want to get your, your perspective on this. From the standpoint of American
3: history, and
1: as you look at other countries around the world, how bad has censorship become in America?
3: You know, the sad thing is, Eric, it's uh, first things first, let's be clear who this guy is. So Glenn yeah. Greenwald, it, 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 he he hates the president. Mm-hmm. This isn't some, you know, MAGA guy. Right. Uh, the, the Intercept is hardcore left wing. He is left wing. But he's had enough with, with censorship on the left. Uh, the situation here in America is worse than in a dictatorship. Let me explain. So my parents, as children suffered under a, a Nazi occupation uh, in, in Budapest, in Hungary. As adults, they were persecuted under the communist regime mm-hmm. that replaced it. My father was arrested, tortured, and put in a political prison by the communists. And, and you had censorship behind the Iron Curtain, but those people had to write the lies, whether it was at Pravda, Izvestia, mm. whether it was at TASS, they had to write them because otherwise they'd go to the gulag. Here in America, they're, they're writing and publishing the propaganda with voluntarily. There's no threat of the gulags for CNN or Washington Post. And look at the big thing, social media. Mm. The president of the United States has 90, mil, 90 million followers on Twitter. Right. At least 73 million Americans voted for him. And he is being censored by Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. They're putting up. Uh, these banners, these, oh, this tweet is disputed. What what are you talking about? Have have you censored anything to do with Joe Biden? They took down the stories of Hunter Biden's laptop saying it was hacked. Jack Dorsey, it wasn't hacked. They're his laptops that he abandoned at the store with all the emails to China. That is property of the owner of the shop. And you censored it. Oh, and by the way, the president's tax returns, that was a felony. That was a hack of right. the IRS account. A person's tax returns in America are classified. Yes. Did Twitter, did Facebook, did CNN, did Washington Post censor any of those? It is an outrage. And w- w- whatever happens on January 20th, I saw the president last night, I was in the mm-hmm. White House for the Christmas party, whatever happens, we have to be grateful to this man for one amazing thing. He has ripped the mask. Off the fake news he has pulled yes. aside that curtain to see that little green man beside the curtain who's saying, oh oh just believe us and don't question so god bless donald trump because the fake news is a real threat and they are the enemy of the american people eric yeah, and look we, you know you know it better than anybody you've lived it just yes. like i have
1: Yes. No, we've both lived through lived through these attacks. And, you know, speaking of of Twitter, uh, what's interesting is Greenwald, again, you pointed out this is no supporter of the president. He also tweeted this. Um, He said that if Biden wins, that there's going to be a power structure, a Democratic Party fully unified with, you know, Bush Cheney operatives, CIA, FBI, NSA in Silicon Valley, and that much of the left is going to continue marching behind it. Now, Dr. Gorka, you know, traditionally people, when they thought of political conflict in America, they thought, often thought of it as being between two competing parties, between the Republicans and the, and the Democrats. But I think what Greenwald's pointing out, like, and a lot of people are saying, is that in many ways, it's really just a conflict between the swamp and the D.C. power structure and American citizens. What, what's your take on that?
3: I don't know if he came up with it, but uh, Steve Bannon, when I was in the White House, he used the phrase the uni party. And he's absolutely Mm. right. Whether it's the two establishment parties, the Democrats and the GOP, whether it's the deep state, whether it's the swamp, whether it's the legacy media, it's one amorphous blob. And how do we know that? Very easy. The election occurred five weeks ago, five weeks ago. Eric, how many people with the letter R behind their name on Capitol Hill have stood up Not just for the president. This isn't about a man Mm -hmm. and a party. This is about, you know, suitcases of ballots being pulled from under tables to be counted illegally once the poll watchers have been escorted out of the building. How many Republicans have stood up and said this? Cannot happen. Look, you know who they are. You get a very small piece of paper and write all their names on. They're, they're the regular guests on my show, America First. It's people like you know, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Brian Babin, uh, Lee Zeldin, Louis Gohmert, uh, Marsha Blackburn. By, by the time you're in double digits, Eric, that's it. That's it. It's, it's an that's excitement. It. These people are all scratching each other's back. You see Lindsey Graham fist bumping with Kamala Harris, and you know...
1: I th- and, and I think one of the things that is so infuriated our viewers, and I'm sure you're hearing it every day, you're speaking to millions of Americans across the country, is that they wanted and they expected Republicans to step forward and to make yep. sure that they were fighting for election integrity. There's a tremendous amount of disappointment, not just with what's happened with the election irregularities, but they really feel like they don't have people who are in there their fighting for them. And let me let me get, get your, your take on that, on the current battle in the courts over the election. What's your message to our viewers about not just what they should be watching, but also what they should be doing?
3: Look, I told the president this. Three weeks ago, um, I, I, I've been saying it every single day on my radio show. America First. The, the legal battle is important. God bless Rudy. Godspeed. Uh, he needs to, you know, crush COVID as soon as possible. Jenna Ellis is a rock star. Joe DeGeneva, Victoria Tansey. They need to take this all the way to the Supreme Court so the American people can can see the, the level of corruption uh, in the Democrat precincts. But this will be not. This will not be won in the courts even be won in the Supreme Court because we just don't have the time. Uh, This will be a political battle that must be won in the state houses. Let's be very clear here. Everyone watching your show knows there's no way on God's green earth, forget, you know, Dominion voting systems and, and suitcases of ballots. There's no way that a decrepit, senile old man who's been a machine politician for 47 years that Joe Biden got more votes than the first black president. Everybody knows they stole it. It it is just absolutely clear. We have to send a very clear message. The president, every single one of your viewers has to call up their state houses, which which are run by the Republicans. This Mm -hmm. is shocking. All the battleground states have state houses that are run by the GOP and the constitution is clear. It is the state houses that send the electoral college uh, elected votes to D.C. They actually verify and certify the election. And we have to send them a very simple message. If you're a Republican politician in a state house in the next day or two and you dare to verify a clearly fraudulent election, you will never, ever be reelected. What happens then? Nobody gets the 270 threshold, and we flip into what the Constitution calls a contingent election, and it's how Thomas Jefferson was elected. At this point, the House of Representatives elects the president not by member vote, which we would lose to the Democrats, but a one-state, one-vote-per-state political delegation vote, which right now is in the hands of the GOP. We outnumber, we outnumber the the, the, uh, Democrats in in the House and they would choose the president and the president gets a second term. But it requires your listeners to step up to the plate and it requires the GOP to grow a spine, Eric.
1: Yes. Well, and let's talk about that just in the last 60 seconds that we have left, because a lot of people might not recognize we have had presidents. I mean, you pointed to our third president, Thomas Jefferson, in 1800, you know, voted out of the out of the House of Representatives. Talk a little bit just in the the 20 seconds we, we have left about how this contingent election process
3: works. So if there's no 270 mandate for either candidate, there is no electoral college mandate for the president. The House of Representatives meets by state delegation, you know, the the 50 states. They vote in a simple majority for the president. The vice president is voted, is elected by the Senate. And right now the GOP has the majority in the House and Donald Trump would be elected. And my message is very simple. If it was good enough for Thomas Jefferson, it's good enough for President Trump.
1: Good. And Seb, in in 10 seconds, let everybody know where and how they can hear you and follow you on America First with Sebastian Gorka.
3: Right. We're on the Salem Radio Network, hundreds of stations, millions of listeners across the country. We live stream on YouTube. Just look for my name, Sebastian Gorka, and America First. You can get it on podcasts, and just go to our website, sebgorka.com. That's S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A.com. And thank you, Eric.
0: We
1: appreciate having you on again, folks, and we'll be back in just a minute.
4: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen and we bring you the perspectives and the voices that the mainstream media so often censor. Well, the battle over the election continues in the courts, and there's no one better to break it all down than friends of the show, Victoria Tenzing and Joseph DeGeneva. Victoria is a former Deputy Assistant U.S. Attorney General, and Joe is a former United States Attorney. Uh, Victoria and Joe, as you and I have have talked about before, we've got a really sharp group of well-informed viewers. They appreciate the depth of analysis that we bring them. So I'd like to ask you specifically about the court cases in Pennsylvania to begin with. We have issues both with the state constitution in Pennsylvania and also the federal constitution. Could we start with the state constitution? Could you break down the issue for our our viewers, please?
4: Sure, Eric. The Pennsylvania state constitution is very restrictive as to who can cast absentee ballots. It's like if you're really, really sick, if you're in the military, if you're working on election day. And for some reason, the Pennsylvania legislature, or Republican legislature, decided before COVID in December of 2019 to allow people to cast mail-in ballot- ballots for any reason whatsoever. I think that there was a lot of pressure of the liberals, the Democrats going around the country and pushing people to do this. And for some reason, the Republican legislature caved. So the Republican uh, legislature said uh, you can have an absentee ballot for any reason whatsoever, which violates the state constitution, and that is the case that Congressman Mike Kelly is taking before the Supreme Court. Yeah, we and, and, and we'll just unconstitutional. say unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. And just like
1: in the the Congress cannot pass a law that violates the U.S. Constitution, a state legislature can't pass a law that violates the state constitution, and that that's essentially. Uh, that issue, but there's also an issue regarding the U.S. Constitution and the election in Pennsylvania. Could you also break that one down for us as well?
5: Sure. Uh, here's here's what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did. They got one look at that statute in in a suit that was filed and said, "Well, it didn't go far enough." And so, not only did they overrule the statute and expand it, but they overruled and violated the Pennsylvania State Constitution by saying you could file absentee ballots three days later than the statute. Count count them. Count them. You could count the ballots. Yeah, sorry. You could count the ballots three days later than was required by the statute. In addition, they said it didn't matter if it wasn't postmarked properly and you didn't have to worry about the signatures. So that's what's on appeal, and that's claiming to be a violation of equal protection and due process of the United States Constitution.
4: And there's another issue, Eric, in yeah. Pennsylvania, and this is, and a, but these are such clear constitutional issues. I think those are the ones that are going to make it to the Supreme Court. But but in in uh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. Over 680,000 ballots were counted without one Republican being able to view the process. Not a not a one. They were they were locked out or they were kept behind barriers. That's against state law. That's a violation of the of the requirement that every party political uh, candidate gets to have a, an observer of the process. And we we're talking about the uh, the Alito case where they said, okay, Sam Alito said those any ballots received in those three days after uh, the the election day, you have to segregate them. Well, how do you know if they're segregated if there was no Republican there to see, if they weren't uh, backdated? Yeah,
1: it's it's obvious it's a major issue in Pennsylvania. I wanna come back to that in a minute, but I also, I want first to get your, take on this mainstream media narrative that there's no evidence of election fraud. I'm not a lawyer, you guys are, but from my point of view, an affidavit, sworn affidavits where you have people, you know, in Michigan saying, you know, under oath that they were ordered to backdate ballots. Hundreds of affidavits around the country from people who were swearing and testifying under oath that they saw or were ordered to participate in election fraud. To me, this is the very definition of evidence, but give me from a legal perspective, is this evidence of election fraud?
5: The answer is yes it is, but let's remember where we started. First of all, the mainstream media said there was no evidence. Then when all of these affidavits and testimonies occurred, they Mm. said, well, there may be some evidence, but it's not enough to overturn the election. In fact, it's, it's enough to overturn the election. What is evidence? Evidence is testimony from a person. Evidence is affidavits sworn to by a person. Evidence is video of a ballot counting being done after hours illegally in violation of state law. A photograph is evidence. So anything that has testimony in it is evidence. And therefore, all the stuff that was presented at the state legislative hearings over the last week is evidence, that's testimony, sworn testimony from witnesses in addition to their affidavits, that's evidence.
4: And here, Eric, is what the mainstream media does with evidence, first they say it's not there, then when it appears, they say, oh, well, no, it's not there, we aren't gonna report on it like Hunter Biden's computer. There was never a Hunter Biden computer, was there? And just the, the clip, the, from from Atlanta, Georgia, where you see people counting the votes, that per se is illegal because under Georgia law also, Republicans are entitled to observe the counting process. So the guy who lied, the uh, election official from Georgia who lied and said, oh, well, Republicans went home on their own. We have affidavits that specifically refute that. There's a clip from a local newscaster that said that everybody was asked to go home. And you know what? They just don't report it, except for the few outlets like you. Uh, and let me let right. me
1: ask you guys to put your your hats on again as, as a former U.S. attorney, former deputy assistant U.S. attorney general. Our viewers, when they see what happened in Georgia and they're seeing this video with their own eyes where it certainly appears that the press, that the election observers were ordered to leave and then election counting continued, they ask themselves, like, where is the investigation? Uh, From your perspective, is this being investigated? Why isn't it being investigated? Shouldn't the FBI and other law enforcement agencies be really digging into what appears to be a very clear violation of the law?
5: Well, Eric, it's a very good question from the listeners. Uh, The answer is it should be being investigated. That video alone from Fulton County of the counting going on illegally when there were no observers present is in fact a basis for a criminal investigation. Mm. Uh, That's a violation of federal law and also state law. Now why isn't that happening? Uh, it, it appears that federal law enforcement is waiting not for a smoking gun, but for a smoking cannon of some kind. I happen to think that video is that cannon. Yeah. But I also think that if Sam Alito, over the next 24 hours, refuses to allow Pennsylvania to certify its election until he gets more information, I think that may be the, the event that triggers a federal investigation.
4: And here's why all that is important, Eric. It's because... It's the state legislatures who determine who the electors are. Um, and usually they give it to the popular vote. But the, the, when one has so many flaws and illegalities as the votes in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, then these state legislatures should get some cojones and say we're not going to certify the electors. They don't have to say they're going to give them to Trump. They just say, we're not going to certify them. There's too many problems with the count. Why should Joe Biden people be rewarded for keeping hundreds of thousands of votes being observed by Republicans?
1: And I want to come in a moment to the I want to come in a moment to to, uh, just Justice Alito and, and his actions. But if you could, please, for our viewers, break down. Uh, a little bit about what would happen in a contingent election because a lot of people when they hear, well, it's going to go to the House, they think, well, there are more Democratic representatives than Republican. But in fact, in a in a contingent election in the House, each state actually gets one vote. Could you just break down for our viewers exactly what happens in a contingent
5: election? Sure. Uh, what happens is when there are not enough electoral votes for either candidate, say they're each at 269 which would happen if, say, several of the state legislatures refused to certify any electors and sent it to the House of Representatives. What would happen is, in the House of Representatives, each delegation for each state gets one vote. So since the Republicans have more state delegations than the Democrats, they would have enough votes to elect Donald Trump as president of the United States. This has happened before in the 19th century. And the Supreme Court in Bush versus Gore ruled that that process is recognized in the Constitution, that it must be followed, and they recognize the contingent election as actually being possible in Bush v. Gore, because in that situation, the Florida legislature had drafted joint resolutions saying that they were going to name the electors and not according to the popular vote. Uh, And
1: and Victoria and Joe, just in the next 24 to, to 48 hours, Give our viewers, if you could, a sense for what's likely to happen—the case before Justice Alito—and what might be happening here in the next in the next 24 to 48 hours.
4: Well, a lot hinges on what Justice Alito is going to do in Pennsylvania, and that's what we're we are awaiting. And I think if if he then says that there were so many problems in Pennsylvania that these electors should not be certified, it may give these other state legislators who seem to be a lot of. Uh, chickens and cowards among them, but some who are really adamant, and so they're trying to work it out, to say, we're not going to certify electors when there are so many votes that are at issue.
1: Excellent. And And that could happen as soon as? Tomorrow. So as soon as tomorrow. And then this would then give other state legislatures the ability to then make their own decisions about whether or not they are going to certify electors or- No,
4: they have the ability. They have the constitutional authority. They have to get the cojones. That's the problem. <laughs> they can
5: do it now. This, It's just if Alito acts, it may give them the uh, the strength to do it. Excellent.
1: Well, as always, folks, that's Victoria Tenzing, Joseph De Genova. We very much appreciate your expert analysis of what is happening in the election and your willingness to break all of these issues down for our viewers. Coming up next, it's going to be Ralph Reed with the Faith and Freedom Coalition talking about what's happening in the Georgia Senate runoff. Stay right with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we are proud to bring you strong voices rooted in history and the Constitution that too often are ignored by the mainstream media. And we're joined now by my good friend, Dr. Ralph Reed. He's the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and the author of the book For God and Country, He joins us from Georgia. Ralph, it's great to see you. Thank you so much, Good to be with you again. Absolutely. Ralph, you've got a new op-ed out in the Christian Post titled, Did Evangelicals Swing to Biden? Not Hardly. Uh, Give our viewers an update on what happened with the evangelical vote.
0: Sure, Eric. Four years ago, Donald Trump won 1% of the evangelical vote. It was the highest figure ever won. By a presidential candidate of either party, and uh, obviously uh, there was a lot of interest in in how they would do in in 2020 because they were such a critical part mm. of his victory in 2016. Some who are claiming based on the network exit poll that 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 Trump didn't do as well and Biden did a lot better, but that's not backed up by our survey. We commissioned a post-election survey by Public Opinion Strategies, one of the most respected polling firms in America. They show the president winning 81% of the self-identified evangelical vote Mm. again. And they show Biden only winning 14%, which is less than Hillary won. Now that's our poll. You don't have to believe our poll, but then there was another survey. Uh, A massive national uh, exit poll conducted by the Associated Press, not exactly a conservative media outlet, (laughs) and they found that Trump won 81% of the evangelical vote. And why is that important? It's because that group cast 28% of all the votes cast on election day. Mm -hmm. That's bigger than the African American vote, the union vote, and the Hispanic vote combined, and it was even larger in some of the critical states, 34 percent of the vote in North Carolina, 32 percent of the vote uh, in Ohio, uh, about the same in Texas. And uh, if you combine it with Trump splitting the Catholic vote and winning the frequently mass-attending Catholic vote, roughly two to one, it was voters of faith that kept the president as close as he was in every one of those battleground states. And it was good as a faith that enabled the Republicans to hold the Senate, at least so far, we have two critical runoffs on January 5th, uh, in an election where the Democrats thought they had a very good chance of picking up perhaps, if you can believe it, as many as 10 Senate seats and, the, and to date they've only picked up one And of course, Republicans have won so far, I think it's 12 or 13 House seats and it may go higher. So votes of faith were loyal to Trump. They were loyal to the pro-life cause and they are the reason why the Republicans did as well as they did on Election day.
1: Absolutely. And I want to come to the Georgia runoff elections in, in just a moment. moment. Uh, you've been on the front lines of this, Ralph, for, for decades now. Give our viewers your sense for why it is that evangelical voters not only supported Trump, but why they really left the Democratic Party.
0: Well, there are many reasons, but I think the most important reason, the central reason, is the issue of life. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is the most pro-life president in American history. There's no question about it. He, no other president had ever been willing to do. And that was, he defunded Planned Parenthood under the Title 10 family planning program. This is a program uh, that uh, basically counsels young women in planning their families and for decades, the, uh, the number one recipient of that program was Planned Parenthood, which was using the program to encourage, promote, and perform abortions. He was also the first president to ever speak at the March for Life. And, and then another big issue related, but not just the single issue of abortion, is the federal courts. Mm-hmm. And here again, Donald Trump and the Republican Party have been the champions. I mean, President Trump appointed uh, Three Supreme Court justices, uh, 56 or seven appellate court judges, and over 200 total federal judges. And he wanted them to be young, he wanted them to be conservative, and he wanted them to be pro-life. And if you look at the other side, the Democratic Party that I grew up, Mm. seeing in Georgia, in my home state, and that you grew up in your Mm -hmm. home state of Missouri is unrecognizable today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are abortion on demand, paid for with tax dollars, as an entitlement program and a socialistic health care plan up through the moment of birth, partial birth abortion, pain-capable abortion, late-term abortion, taxpayer-funded abortion, and when you combine that with what they did to Brett Kavanaugh, their hostility, religious freedom, you know conservative people of faith are finding a very hard time finding a home in the Democratic Party anymore Eric yeah, and you know
1: one of the things i want to I want to pick up on there is that President Trump has been willing to do a lot of things that Republicans in the past had promised to do but actually hadn't done. you know, you and I had talked before about the president's support for the state of Israel and just like his support for the pro-life movement he was willing to do things like move the American Embassy to Jerusalem even in, in contravention to and some opposition from some people in the Republican foreign policy establishment. He's really been willing to do those, those bold things. Now, Ralph, you've been on, on the front lines also of Georgia politics for a long time. The whole country right now is focused on Georgia. Give us a sense for what you and your organization are doing in these Georgia runoff elections and why they're so important.
0: Well, I'm a former college Republican state chairman here. I'm a former state Republican Party chairman here. Uh, I've uh, I've helped run statewide campaigns uh, in Georgia going back, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but going back to the late 70s. So I know this very well. Uh, my organization Faith and Freedom has identified 1.45 million evangelical, and pro-life Christians in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, about a third of the vote, a little over a third of the boat. Five million votes cast on November 3rd. That's a record. Uh, and uh, we're contacting those Christian voters to get them back out on January 5th. Uh, we're knocking on 500,000 doors minimum. We hope to get north of that. We're making over a million get-out-the-vote calls. We're dropping a a million-and-a-half pieces of education literature to their households. We're sending out two to two-and-a-half million uh, text messages. And by the way, those million phone calls, those are not robocalls. These are volunteers who are actually calling voters and talking to them, either on their cell phone or their home or work phone. And then in addition to that, we've got a whole digital and social media campaign, and we're mobilizing 5,500 churches to distribute over a million educational voter guides and make sure every member of their church votes early or on January 5th. And if we do our job, even (coughs) as Donald Trump, apparently, I say apparently because there's still litigation going on even if you believe the current vote total in Georgia, where the president came up about 11,700 votes short in 5 million votes, on the same day, David Perdue led John Ossoff by 88,000 votes. And so if we do our job and we get those voters back out, uh, we'll see both of these outstanding U.S. senators uh, return to the Senate on January 5th.
1: And Ralph, I just want to affirm, you know, from my own experience that having people who are making those personal phone calls as opposed to a robocall makes a tremendous difference. Uh, You guys have been out there with this ground game, actually having people in touch with their friends, their neighbors, with family members, with relatives to actually uh, connect to them. Talk, if you would, about what's at stake, though, for people of faith around the country, and how they can help to make sure that you know, that, that faith and, and freedom are protected in
0: these runoff votes in Georgia? Well, you know, it's a great question, Eric. And one of the great things about the technology of the internet era is we, uh, we've put together an app uh, that, that people can either download on their mobile phone or we can email it to them. So they can go to our website, which is ffcoalition.com. That's FF, as in faith and freedom, coalition.com. And there's a volunteer intake form and people can either come to Georgia and knock on doors and believe it or not, we have hundreds of them who have come from around the country to come to Georgia. They're knocking on doors, even as I speak. We have 856 volunteers making calls or knocking on doors. If they can't come to Georgia, that's okay. They can still call these voters Again, going to the same website, ffcoalition.com, there's a volunteer take form. They can either, A, I want to come to Georgia and knock on doors over the Christmas holidays. If they want to do that, we can provide lodging and transportation. If they want to make phone calls, they can do it from anywhere in the country. And uh, they just check that. We email them the software. We provide them with a data set. And look, even if you're only making 10 or 20 calls to Georgia Christian voters, I think the key to victory is to have a lot of people do a little. We don't want to have a little people having to do a lot. We want a big army. We're on our way to 1,000 volunteers. It's historic. It's groundbreaking. We're going to crush this thing. We're going to see the biggest turnout of conservative and Christian voters Georgia in its history, and we're going to teach a lesson to the radical left that Georgia is not New York, California, or Illinois. That's right.
1: Well, folks, that's Dr. Ralph Reed. It's ffcoalition.com, where you can find him there. That's the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And we will be back tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Dr. Gina coming up right now.